Praise be to God. As we open the word again together, I was reminded of a friend I ran into this weekend and said he went and saw his, his grandson started to play baseball and he was reminded of how far they need to go. So that was a, a, a kind word from a grandpa who's a struggling t-ball player who was on his way to go play some softball tournament in Vegas. So obviously he still loves the game. And, uh, and it's interesting as we read this in hindsight, it's like how far did the, did the disciples still need to go? Um, every time I read that, this is the third time Jesus tells them exactly what he's going to do. As Westerners, it's like, I'm going to be delivered over, killed, buried, rise again. At least Matthew, who's like super detailed note taker, probably would have been like, hey, um, read this book. Everyone communicates, few people connect. What I'm hearing you say, Jesus, is that you're going to be turned over. You're going to be flogged, beaten. You're going to be killed. But three days later, you're going to rise again. You've told us that three times. Is that, what you're, is that what I'm hearing you correctly? But no one. It says they didn't understand these things. They were hidden for them. They didn't grasp what was being said. They've seen Jesus do miracles for three years, starting with the water turned to wine. But are we so complacent with Christ's words that we care less about the miracles of Christ, about the power of Christ, about the purpose of Christ? You think about the water turned to wine. He didn't need, he didn't use grapes. In himself, he was able to, to take water and make it wine. They didn't understand. They understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. So looking back, we see that it was hidden from them. But similarly, we, we can get so used to Christ's words that we're, we're almost numb to the, the power that Christ has and the person of Christ as king. And so the first point we see is, as Jesus went from his Baptism at the Jordan River filled with this Holy Spirit anointing three times was tempted and, and, and outlasted the devil with, with scripture, then put his power on display through healing diseases, casting out demons, raising the dead. Clearly, he was the son of God. Explicitly, without a doubt, he was the son of David, the promised Messiah that they'd been waiting for, but the king's purpose was not understood. It was hidden from them. And we see, after he tells them, I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. I'll be mocked, mistreated, spit on. He'll be scourged. He'll be killed. And Matthew says, crucified. But I'll rise again. And they didn't, they didn't get it. We see as he's on his way here to accomplish that. To go to Jerusalem. To lay his life down. The king's purpose was not understood. Do you understand it today? When you read about Jesus, are you so grateful that you get it? But then are we checking our hearts and, man, are we so quick to read these words and go, wow. But am I still looking to Jesus as king? Am I looking to his purpose in, in this world and in my life? Or am I distracted by men's purposes and how quickly they fail and falter? We see his ability with these key miracles, four of them. One was recorded in, in chapter 13, one in 14, and now uh, one in, in 17. And this is the fourth and the last which is sad because I hate when things end. I'm like, I don't want to preach this sermon because I mean it's over. 
That means all it is is like pain and suffering and death on the cross. Like that's not good. That's why we have Good Friday because when we celebrate death and it's like, how is a Good Friday good? But that's why we decided to eat a meal together because we're focused on hospitality. We'll get to that point in a minute already. I'm like, I don't want to talk about hurtful, hard things. Let's talk about food and fun. Like we don't like getting to this point and realizing, oh, we're done with miracles. Like we're done. It's over. This is the last one that gets to celebrate coming to Jesus. And some of you might have read ahead and you're already excited for Zacchaeus next week. Some commentaries have said, hey, maybe Zacchaeus was already saved and that's why the crowd was in front of Jesus. Because Jesus had hung out with Zacchaeus for 24 hours, had the meal with him, and he started paying everybody back and then paid them back not just what they owed. He owed them, but four times. Obviously, that'd be a huge crowd. On top of the fact that the town next to Jericho was where Lazarus would have been raised from the dead after being dead, dead for four days. Jesus raises him. So, so we see this place is very key for Jesus to do his last salvation call before he's on the cross. And it's the thief and the centurion that are like, ooh, yeah, you're, you're, this is literally my last breath. And Jesus, can I, yeah, you'll be with me in paradise. And then Jesus dies and the centurion's like, ooh, I've made some mistakes in my life, but this one, that one's going to last and leave a mark. That was Jesus, the son of God like that. Uh, yeah, this was probably a good day to call in sick. Like I, I did that like, uh Oh, whoops. Um, Hey, can we do, is there, no, that's Nintendo. There's no reset button yet. Oh man, there's no reset in the crucifixion. Like we should have thought of that. There's no like come back to life pin. Like it's over. It's final. And I killed Jesus. Like that was the most amazing confession of, Oh, that was the son of God. But here we are today in Jericho. Let me tell you a little bit about Jericho because it's the city of Palms. It's a six hour uh, walk through Jericho. It's six miles north of the Dead Sea. And in those days, the city was fed by spring. So it was lush with just irrigation. And, and they had even, when those springs were kind of running dry, they'd pump water into these reservoirs and they'd irrigate this flourishing crop full of dates and palms and almonds and fruit trees that were everywhere. And there's a plant called basalm that was used for medicinal applications. It was found only in that region because it was so perfectly situated. Josephus says if you were going to live in Jericho, you only needed a, a linen clothes, like basically board shorts and a tank top, and you were set. Like it's perfectly, the climate is awesome, which I was like, man, no wonder I, I loved having a, a cup of coffee in Jericho um, and looking at the ruins that were there and, and seeing the new Jericho that was is existing. And, and it's this amazing climate. And when we, we flew into Israel, several years ago, we flew into like the weather we're having now. Like it was freezing cold, snowing. And I'm like, wait, I thought Israel was like the desert. Like, why is there snow here? And it was amazing to see how in Jerusalem it was snowing. And in Jericho, we were like sweating because I didn't bring board shorts and a tank top. I, I knew it was gonna be cold. So I'm like delayering going, man, Jericho's warm. Exactly. That's why it's, it's this amazing city and climate. Mark tells us in, in Jerusalem during the Passion Week, on the Mount of Olives that Mark says in chapter 11, verse 13, it was not yet the season for figs, yet Jesus cursed a fig tree in Jericho. Because down at that lower level, it was warm enough that in Jericho it was the season for fig trees. The Dead Sea being nearby, it was, it was this perfect climate. Mark Anthony gave uh, the city to Cleopatra, 
which when you're Mark Anthony, that's what you do. You just give cities away. So Cleopatra got hooked up with this amazing city, not a little tennis bracelet, but a city. And that's a pretty good gift because Josephus said it was this amazing place. And Herod loved it so much, he built one of his fortresses there, and that's where he had his last days before he passed, it was in Jericho. But much of us, probably like me, didn't know all that. You, all you knew is it was this amazingly fortified walled city that God said, hey, go destroy it. And, and Joseph, not Joseph, Yeshua, Joshua, came up with this amazing strategic battle plan. Much of you maybe are trying to figure out how to navigate banks or what's happening in our world and climate. And, and, and so he's figuring out the strategy and then God shows up and, and jo- Joshua's like, are you for me or against me? And God's like, I'm God on my own side, neither. Who are you on? And Joshua's like, oh, and bowed down and worshiped him. And God's like, hey, just walk. I got this. And that's the old Jericho. The walls fell out. Now the new Jericho is, is the locations close. And so I say that because we think about this implication. Jesus is going, Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus is going to Jerusalem, into the promised land, but he's going through Jericho, the new Jericho. So when, when Luke writes, he's saying that Jesus is approaching Jericho, Matthew and Mark, their account say he was leaving Jericho. It's possible because of the, if you look on a topo map, right, you can be going to, but also coming from at the same time because of the elevation. But it's an infinitive clause, so basically in the Greek, it just means in the vicinity. So that's even more clear for me. It's like, yeah, he's near, which helps because you're like, wait, are you in a Templeton or Paso? It's like, ah, we're in the vicinity. We're on the central coast. Like, we're, that's where our church is. Like, it's right there. Just get off on Main Street and take, we're in the vicinity. So Jesus is in the vicinity. And in possibly, which I like the tension, even though Luke in his writing this to Theophilus puts Zacchaeus after, I like to see Zacchaeus hang out with Jesus before because you have the raising of the dead from Lazarus. You have Zacchaeus, everyone's getting this random payday. It's like, wow, that came a lot quicker than Newsom's debit card in the mail. And it's four times what Zacchaeus stole from me. This is awesome. Like, this is great. And Lazarus rose from the dead. Where's Jesus? You have this massive crowd, which we've seen crowds now in our day. Like, I never thought I'd see riots or crowds or anything, but it's like this massive crowd and they're going nuts for good reasons. And then all of a sudden, this blind beggar, blind Bartimaeus, is hanging out with all the blind guys. And in Matthew and Mark's account, Mark's account shows there's two blind guys that Jesus heals. And it's amazing because the crowd gets close, and as they draw near, the crowd is going, and the blind guy inquires, hey, what's going on? Because he can only hear, he can't see. Hence, he's blind. And they tell him, hey, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And all the other blind guys are like, ah, what gives? But this guy's like, Jesus, you mean the son of David? He, he calls him something. He doesn't call him what the crowd's calling him. He's not curious. He's convinced. This is the son of David. He's not wondering, oh, man, I hope it's a good day today and it's not going to rain too much because that would ruin our baseball. No, he's not concerned about the cares of this world. He's not, oh man, what's politically going to happen this week? He's like, dude, forget about this week and all the cares and what people are going to do or not do and saying and not saying. The son of David is right here. And so he cries out, this is the only one and the only thing that matters. The son of David is here. 
He cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. We just read about the tax collector that was beating his chest. And the Pharisee was like, at least I'm not like that loser. And the tax collector's like, whoa, is me. Have mercy on me. Beating his chest because out of his heart is where sin came from. The blind man couldn't see physically, but spiritually he was so clearly seeing who was before him. Jesus was so clear that he came to seek and save the lost. He was so clear that he came to be a servant, not to be served. So, so for us, we see what happens here is amazing. It happened. Jesus is walking, going to the cross, so preoccupied with the mission, but he always began his days in his ministry in prayer. He was available and ready. And I I like to think that he was kind of, even one commentator said he was leaving Jericho and then he heard him and turned around and went back. Which kind of makes sense because he's, he's blind. So he didn't see, he just heard commotion and all of a sudden maybe it started to die down and he's like, oh no, I might've missed my chance, Jesus. And everyone's like, be quiet, he's passing. And that's when he cries out, it says, All the louder, it says, and those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Possibly, if you're looking at it on the big screen, maybe with popcorn in your hand and a Diet Coke in the movie theater, the the screenwriter probably, and maybe what happened was Jesus passed by, and he's in the vicinity of Jericho, and then all of a sudden he hears it get quieter because he he can't see. So his timing's off. Maybe I'm just projecting a little bit of me because my timing's always off. Like if I was the blind guy, I would be like, oh, wait, and talking to someone, and all of a sudden it gets, oh, the crowd left us. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. As they like tell us to be quiet, and you're like contemplating, do I go louder? Maybe this isn't Jesus. Maybe this is just another crowd. Like, I don't know. I can't see. But he's just convinced and committed. His heart is set. So he cries out all the more. In verse 40, Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked. But why did he stop? Why was he calling him the son of David? We see in in Matthew chapter 20, verse 29, and Mark 10, verse 32, he calls him the son of David. Where Jesus uses this term from the seventh chapter of Daniel, which records Daniel's vision of the, the sweep of world's history graphically represented by a series of beasts coming to the end in this ultimate judgment that is is accomplished by the ancient of days god the father and the vision wraps up with these words in my vision at night i looked and there before me was one like a son of man jesus loves that term the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven He approached the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, Jesus was given authority, glory and sovereign power, all peoples, nations, and men of every language. They worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So this massive crowd is experiencing that king here, alive, the son of David that was promised, because... Jesus, the son of Jesus of Nazareth, is what was told to the blind man, but he knows and he believes in his heart. No, Jesus is the son of David. That's where he his earthly but his godly promised power is is the son of David, and this is important because 
He's confirming his faith. His belief in his heart is confessed with his mouth by saying, Jesus, the son of David. We see in, in Matthew's account, the redeemer of Israel and God's anointed king, he came to serve and to save and to seek those who were lost. This title is, is, is continually linked to Jesus as the mess, messianic king. His title is one to be the, the one who would fulfill that promise that God made to David, the Davidic, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, where God promises David is going to have a greater son who's going to reign and whose kingdom will be everlasting. See, it's important that we know the Old Testament because when we read the New Testament, it's easy to go, weird blind dude just keeps yelling out this weird like son of David. Like, David's a cool guy. He killed a giant with a rock, okay? But this is Jesus of Nazareth. He knew that God promised to send a savior. He knew that he was waiting for a savior. He wasn't waiting for anybody else or anything else. He was waiting for God to send the son of David because he made that promise. And there's no one greater. We know that David had a decent run. Solomon may, maybe arguably could have had a, a more expansive kingdom run, but they both ended with struggle, turmoil, and especially Solomon ended up with a divided kingdom. So obviously Solomon wasn't David's son that God promised. There was another one coming. Interestingly enough, both when the New Testament starts, it runs the genealogy path from Mary and Joseph. Both parents were in the line of David. And he was born in Bethlehem, where, where David was born. He was fully, by fatherly right and blood, the heir of David's throne. More than that, he was God's choice. In the beginning of the chapter Luke, in verse 32, Gabriel comes and tells Mary, he will be great. The son you're about to have will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. So probably the vicinity in Jericho where Joshua led Israel out of captivity into the promised land and had these walls destroyed by God's word. The, the second and better and, and fulfillment of God's promise, Yeshua, coming through jo Jericho, this blind man had heard all this and he believed in his heart, this is the promise. The promise from the Old Testament, the promise that was fulfilled here through the birth uh, of the virgin birth of Mary, Jesus, he's here. The son of David is here. So why wouldn't he cry out all the more? We see again in, in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 69, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. If you follow it into the book of Acts, the preachers of the early gospels are also preaching that Jesus Christ is the son of David. If you follow it all the way to the book of Revelation, when he comes to establish his kingdom, he is the son of David. This is who Jesus is. It's so amazing. In, in Matthew, we see this, this glimpse as he comes into the, the city of Jerusalem. The crowds are shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. And then he goes up and he tips over the tables and the children are running around, in which I just love the scene of chaos. Because if you ever have a couple kids in your house or you hear them usually, you know, towards the end of the service, if I go a little too long, all of a sudden they're running around. It's loud over next door, right? And it, they're just like, yeah, Jesus is whipping people and turning over tables. Woo! You know, the kids are like, organized chaos, more crazy. The son of David's here. And they're just can't help but tell who he is. 
And then they come to him later, and they're like, okay, the crowd said this, the kids are saying this. And, and they say in chapter 22 of Matthew, verse 41, the Pharisees gathered together. Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? What do you Pharisee think? Now we've talked about the popular, the general. We've talked about the kids. And they said, this, he's the son of David. Everyone understood that. Here's a blind man who can't see physically, but spiritually he sees this is the son of David. We don't know through what means he's come to know who told him. Maybe his parents were constantly, man, one day, one day you're going to see the son of David. He's coming. He's coming. Are you expectantly waiting for the Redeemer, the King of Israel to come? And here he comes to lead not just Israel, but the world out of slavery from sin into salvation in him. Jesus, the son of David, have mercy on me. And he calls him out from the crowd, come here. And this is where the spiritual blessing belongs to those who go for it. Regardless of the crowd saying, shh, it's not politically correct. Shh, not right now. Maybe we'll get you backstage later. We'll see if he has time. Like, no, the son of David, have mercy on me. I'm not waiting. And Jesus says, hey, come here. And in, in Mark, it's amazing because in Mark, it says he has a, that linen. Remember, Josephus said, if you wanted to live in Jericho, you just need like a little sheet. And so maybe it was like in the morning, right? Like that cold dew where it was a little cold and wet. So he had the sheet on him. Because in Mark, it says that when he was called, he flew off his, his, his little cloak, his little sheet he had, which was the only thing he possessed because he's blind. He couldn't really get his like, you know, bug out bag ready and his nine millimeter, make sure all the like, hey, I don't know where Jesus is going to take me, but I could get dicey. I'm going to get ready, stocked. He didn't grab his gold bars like, hey, God, you know, you never know what's going to happen, but Jesus is calling me. I got to get my, the only thing he had was a little cloak and he threw it off. Last week we talked about, are we coming helpless and humble to Jesus, not showing our works, but it's the same call. The rich man went to Jesus. What must I do? And Jesus said, you really want to know your cloak, everything, give it to the poor and come follow me, sell it and give it away. Everything you have, it's the same gospel call. Everything we think we are, unless he defines our worth, his word isn't worth it. But he defines this blind man's worth, and so he's like, I'm not going to need this little cloak, because the king is here. I'm going to follow the king wherever he goes, and he'll provide everything I need. I have no worry. And he goes for it. Someone once bluntly asked blind and deaf Helen Keller, isn't it terrible to be blind? To which she responded, better to be blind and see with your heart than to have two good eyes and see nothing. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him and says, what do you want me to do? He throws his cloak aside, jumps to his feet and runs to Jesus. And Jesus hears him say, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus says to him, recover your sight your faith has sozo. The Greek word is sozo. Your faith has made you well. You're saved because by grace, your heart has believed that I'm the son of David and your mouth has confessed who I am and you're saved. Your faith has saved you. Your faith, by grace, I gave you the faith to understand, the eyes to see, not physically yet, spiritually. It's the perfect textbook. Here's how miracles work. 
The gospel comes first. Salvation comes and the miracles confirm. Because Mark tells us it's blind Bartimaeus. And there's a friend. Luke just says, hey, there's a blind guy. Everybody would have known by the time Luke wrote this, which I'm sure everyone was like, oh yeah, blind Bart and the guy in Mark. I remember, I was, no, we don't always study the scriptures, so we don't know that. But in the early church, when this was written to Theophilus, Luke already knew, hey, this guy knows. We just had lunch with blind Bart. Now he's not blind anymore because Jesus gave him sight. And, and, it, and he's been telling everybody. He was probably up in the upper room when the Holy Spirit fell. And Bartimaeus is like, dude, I'm so glad I left my cloak. I did not need that. I have the Holy Spirit. I'm going to go tell everyone about Jesus. And I'll probably die in the next couple weeks. But it's okay. Like he was that committed because he got to see the son of David. He got to stand there. And I think for me, that's the one thing I was like, wow. I've taught this before. And, and to be honest, this week and a couple weeks, this cold and just certain things, it's been busy and full. And I got to the place where I was like, I don't really, if I reflect on this story, I'd probably be one of the other blind guys that was like, good job, Bart, dude, I'm just chilling here. I'm going to just hit snooze one more time. I'm kind of tired. Like, like, Lord, you got to do this in me. I'm so excited to preach this and this is amazing, but am I focused on Jesus and him alone? Like Bartimaeus was blind and was able to see for the first time, but all he saw was Jesus. The first thing he saw was Jesus. And that is really seeing. Because he already believed, but his eyes got to take and behold the King of Kings, the one that had been promised and all of the prophecies were about, he got the blessing to see it and to be with Jesus so that he got to proclaim that Jesus rose from the dead. That is amazing. But convicting because there's a bunch of other blind guys that didn't. Our Lord wanted the man to articulate his heart's desire so he could strengthen the man's faith. That's why you're here. That's why I'm here. I'm not... Sitting up all week long, just, yeah, everything's great. Can't wait to just preach this, you know, no big deal. It's like, whoo. Sometimes there's weeks where it's hard. But then I come and I'm like, throughout the week, getting texts of all that God's doing in and through you. And, and excited about this, this application we're going to get to in a minute. But it's, it's encouraging and building our faith because not every day and every week is easy. In fact, we're going to have trials, especially following Jesus. And so we need each other to to fan the flames of faith and encourage one another and equip each other. And so I was, I was talking with the team and I'm like, you know, we've talked about hospitality. We've been in, in just really grabbed hold of the vision of being known by our love. But how do we do that? Let's flush that out. And, and so often the calls are always, come to Jesus now for salvation, right? Come here, blind guy, what do you want? Let's, let's heal you, give you eyes. But, but so often for our, our seasons, whether it's a grandparent, single, and you got like eight jobs, plus ministry, or you got a family and you're like, hey, I haven't been to church in eight weeks. You're lucky I'm here, pastor. Okay, don't push your luck. When I say, hey, invite someone over or get lunch with them or grab coffee, you're looking at your schedule going, when? So I thought, you know, if we did six weeks, I don't know where that came from. I just prayed about it. And it was kind of cool because that's four weeks till Easter. So maybe you're like, hey, it's crazy till Easter. And then after that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a, a, a date with someone. I'm going to invite a family over. So he prompted you Put it so where you see it, maybe on your dash or your fridge, right where you're going to meet the address, contact info, because the vision is that we'd be a church known by our love. So when we greet in the beginning, it's not just to greet, just to greet for greeting's sake. It's really, we want to be hospitable. 
and, and invite people over. And as I've been equipped through this, this training of, of evangelism and, and leading a church that has a heart for the lost, they threw this acronym out and I was praying on Wednesday with one of my elders and he's like, hey, everything you're talking about, it's just like this BLESS acronym. I was watching it on Right Now Media, which is a free service for Bible studies we provide. And I was like, yeah, I just learned about it. It's this cool tool that it's kind of catching. And as I have been going through it, I'm like, you know, most of these five things, the Holy Spirit's prompted me. I just never had language to share with you. So, so often people were like, that's a great sermon of what to do. Good job. But how do I do it? I'm like, ah, that's the Holy Spirit's job. Good luck. (laughs) Hopefully the Holy Spirit's talking and hopefully you're listening. But I failed. Sorry. As an equipper. But those, those of you managers are like, oh, cool, is, he's guiding us. Here's the expectation. Six weeks, pray about it, plan it out, and here's how to do it on the back. Begin with prayer. Jesus did that every single time before he went and ministered. Guaranteed, he's praying over Jericho. Okay, Lord, is it Zacchaeus first or is it Bartimaeus? Like, who's it going to be? He knew. He didn't go into Jericho going, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen? I don't know, Jerusalem. He's like, we're going to hang out with this guy in a tree. He's a lonely loser, but I'm going to bring him hope and healing, and he's going to leave a legacy of faith. I'm going to transform his life. We're going to have lunch. And he prayed for him. And the next thing is listen. Jesus walked up to Zacchaeus and was like, what are you doing in the tree? Listen to him. Guaranteed. I watched this apologetic guy doing these hard questions and he, and he took one, and then in two seconds, he throws up this analogy on the screen. I'm like, whoa, that's next level. Like, he's primed and ready to go to answer questions and throw analogies up on the screen from his computer. That's not you, and it's not me, but we can ask questions. Hey, what's going on in your life? Hey, how are you doing with your marriage? How are you doing with your job? How's your boss? You know, how's that friend situation? How's that girlfriend, boyfriend situation? Ask questions, listen. And then talk about their spiritual story and listen. And then the next thing is eat, show hospitality. Hey, let me take you out to lunch. Hey, let me get you a coffee. No one has ever been like, hey, I don't want to hang out with a pastor around food, right? No one's ever denied hanging out with you around coffee or food. That's the, like, God built that in us. And Jesus said, look, we're going to have community around meals. Show hospitality. Now, the caveat, you don't need to always if you live out in Bradley or something, it's kind of hard to invite someone across the room. Maybe it's okay to go to Templeton Market or grab a coffee, okay? But eat, show hospitality, find a meeting place. And then the, third, the, the fourth thing is serve. And I know, guys, I got to push on you because no, I've never met another guy. Everyone looks at me weird. They're like, how do you ask people for help? I'm like, I just know I'm not good at stuff. And I'd rather them do it quicker than me because I have other stuff I want to do that's more fun. And, and so most guys are just either too proud or honoring. And they're like, no, I'm not going to ask for help. I'll just spend eight hours trying to put the Ikea table together before I look at instructions or go on YouTube. I'm like, or I'll just ask someone to do it for me. And then I'll go golf or go have fun. Like, why, why not that? But it's amazing when I think about it. Oh, if I ask someone for help, they have to stay with me until the job's done, which means then I get to share the last S, your story with them. Share the gospel with them. But that might be like, no, 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 I'm not going to help you. Oh, what are you working on? Can I help you? So there's that shared service. Hey, can you help me? Can I help you? And then that's the last S of bless is sharing the gospel. And that's what Jesus did. He saw a blind guy. Hey, how can I help you? What do you want me to do for you? He asked a question. Jesus didn't need the disciples. He doesn't, he doesn't need them. But he brings them along and shows them for three years, here's how to make disciples. You bless them. You begin with prayer. You listen. Then you eat. Then you serve or they serve you. 
and then you share the gospel with them. That's how it works. So who did you connect with in this story? As we leave you with the goal for six weeks, and I want to put a little weight on this, in James it says, if you know what you ought to do and you don't do it, to, to you it's sin. So there's a pretty high call with this card, because you know what you're supposed to do in six weeks. After that point in time, you can talk to Andy, we'll set up some confession, repentance, counseling sessions. We'll talk about the sin you didn't do what you knew you ought to do, okay? So uh, it's pretty high call, and I'm under that same thing too. So I'm like, okay, which neighbor, which you know, parent on my sports team am I going to do this with? But I challenge you with it. Pray about it. Take it serious. As we reflect, were you the disciples that maybe got so comfortable with Christ, you forgot the power of Christ, the person of Christ, the promise. He's the son of David we've been waiting for. What about the, the blind beggar who was so convinced but yet had this physical ailment? Maybe you're struggling physically. Maybe you're suffering. Do you still believe he's the son of David? Do you still believe he's God who has the power to heal even if he doesn't? First, we must see our need. You know, Bartimaeus knew he was blind and he articulated it. For me this week, it was knowing I'm weak and I'm tired and I don't know why it's taken so long to kick this cold. I guess maybe I'm not as young as I once was and it's like three weeks instead of three days. But my kids just seem to kick it like that. And I'm like, ah. But are we saying, Lord, I need help. Like, I gotta go preach and I want it to be excited because I am excited, I just need energy. Are we saying, Lord, I'm just so comfortable that I'm not really caring for people anymore. I'm comfortable that you saved me and I could care less about any other people. Change my heart. I need to see people like you see them. God, I'm, I'm living in sin and I'm hiding it. Like I, I just found a way to really act like I love people, but I don't. And I found a way to act like I'm following you, but I haven't opened my Bible. I haven't sought you. I haven't prayed. So maybe the first thing is just pray for somebody because you're like, yeah, I'm not going to talk to anybody about the gospel because I have not read the Bible. I don't know God. I mean, I know of him, but I don't really know. I need to get to know him better. Pray. But are you honest with him? Hey, I'm blind. I need to see. Now for me, I would have probably heard that open-ended. What do you want me to do? I'd be like, oh, Paul likes to talk on run-on sentences. How many things could I get in this one sentence? Um, marriage, inheritance, college investment, pay off mortgage, and my eyes too, while you're at it. Like, how do you just ask that to, he's like, no, my eyes. Like one thing, but are you honest with what you need? Whatever you need, ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes and your heart to see. Second, once you see your need, you need to see who Jesus is. He's the Son of Man. He's the promised Savior. And worship Him, the Son of David, who came to save. And third, you need to cry out. Jesus, the Son of David, have mercy on me. Seeing your need, who Jesus really is, are we crying out in faith, believing that he has the power to save, believing that his grace and mercy hasn't run out for you, believer, that he's going to restore you and remind you of the power and maybe the people he has planned for you to share the gospel with? And for you who've maybe never trusted in Jesus, the gospel is not you go and do this. The gospel is God's already paid for your sin and he's put his spirit in you so you can go be hospitable. You can go care for people who no one cares about. You can go love those who are so hard to love because it's not you. It's God in you. His, it's his love flowing through you. And that is the hope. 
And that is having our mind and our eyes being fixed on him. Even if physically we can't see, spiritually we see the great example of seeing Jesus. So right now we're gonna, I'm gonna close this in prayer. Give an opportunity for those who have yet to trust in Jesus to believe and be saved. And then we're going to sing together and praise Jesus for blessing us that we could go bless others. And the elements for communion will be passed and I'll come up and close us uh, in a time of communion. So let's, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for today. We ask that your spirit would open the eyes of our hearts as we keep our physical eyes fixed on you. We'd look for those around us and we would see you working in and through us to pray for them, to listen, to provide a meal or coffee, to hang out with them and, and, and practice that hospitality and that we could serve them and they could help us, but ultimately that we could share the hope we have in you with them. We pray, Lord, that we'd be honest with you today, whether we're just not feeling it, whether we're, we're, we haven't, we've kind of drifted away from you because we haven't been actively pursuing you like the blind man that taught us so much today where he cried out fully believing by grace through faith that he threw off his cloak. Do we need to throw off a cloak? Do we need to throw off something we're, we're getting distracted or, or depressed by because we're not trusting fully in you? We're, we're looking to the things of this world still. Lord, we pray that you'd free us fully as believers to be fully free to follow you as Bartimaeus was. We pray, Lord, as we go out to bless those that you'd provide those opportunities over the next six weeks for us to fully take the next step to be known by our love as we pray, listen, eat, serve, and share. God, we ask now for those who've yet to trust in you. For the first time, maybe they're saying, I'm a sinner. All I've thought about and done and desired is anything against God or anything but God. And now I see that Jesus came to save me and to take away my sin and shame and to open the eyes of my heart to see he is the promised one. All through the Old Testament and the New Testament, it talks about Jesus being the one God promised to save us and to explain why we're depressed, explain why everything in this world keeps breaking and falling apart because nothing is right unless we're right with you. We pray as they acknowledge, Lord, I'm a sinner in need of a savior and Jesus, you're that savior, that you'd save them and they'd be honest and bold enough to let us know so we could walk in encouragement as they follow you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.